0: Ooh, I, used the microphone. I used the microphone. Now the whole world knows. I microphones. I mean, sure. Microphones gonna kill me. God bless you, everybody. We'll get started if you'd like. Even if you don't like. Nice to see you, everyone. We are in Second Samuel. Can you tell? I didn't. Re- I don't really have a lesson because it took me too much time to develop this slide. What do you think? Look at the colors and everything. I'm quite impressed. Something's missing. Oh, a brick is missing. You know, leave it to Dave to pick that up. You know, he should be as attentive to the word of God as he is to the slide here. He'd be like a giant. Instead, he's just a critic. Anyone could be a critic. Yeah, Clint. <laughs> I hope not. We should probably move on here So much for slides Listen, let me fill you in David Was king Uh, He was appointed by God David HaMelech Now listen We have an Israeli here today So I am nervous (laughs) Because there's like a ton of names here I'm going to destroy And it would be really wonderful If you didn't throw anything (laughs) so David is king by God's doing but he sinned you know about it with Bathsheba pretty serious and though he had God's forgiveness there are consequences and in his case they were very severe family dysfunction look the person who says I'm an adult what I do privately is none of your business That's a person who has a very naive perspective on sin. That's a person who doesn't understand that the ramifications of sin go beyond the one who sins. That's why God hates it. He doesn't hate the sinner. He hates sin. It doesn't work out. It has consequences. In this case, it was severe family dysfunction. So one of David's sons, Absalom, now wanted to kill his own father. He asserted himself in David's place as king in Jerusalem. And uh, David, in fact, had to flee. Can you imagine this? You have to run from your own son who's after your life. And David had to quickly make haste with a following, a limited following, out of Jerusalem so as to avoid being murdered by his own son. And I want to show you where we think David probably went and i also want to show you a new toy look at this guys Uh, listen you don't get this when brother chuck teaches i'm just trying to tell you this is like the cadillac of bible studies right here we debated give this money to needy people or you know buy a new toy so we got the toy so I'm dying to use this thing. Now you got to stay awake, cause if I shine it at you, you'll be blinded for life. Are you gonna... <laughs> so I want to show you something. Here's Jerusalem right there. See it? Jerusalem, right there. Here's the Dead Sea. See this body of water? Dead Sea. And you see it on your side. It's likely David went. Look from the uh, to the east of Jerusalem, a little south. To the northern shores of the Dead Sea, probably or likely around a place like Qumran or, see here, En Gedi. Many of you have been to both places. Why this area? Two reasons. He was familiar with it. Because when Saul was in pursuit of David, that's where he went. He hid. Also, many caves are in the area. So therefore, David, being a seasoned military man at this point, knew it would be a place he could easily be defended in. So he probably went there. Absalom, meanwhile, is plotting his overthrow and death. But this is no small task. Better men than Absalom have tried to do it and have failed. David is a strong and wise military strategist. But one of Absalom's counselors steps up to the plate with a plan. And here it is in verse 1. Second Samuel chapter 17, that's where we are. Um, speaking of our friend from Israel, this man, Bill, could you raise your hand? See that guy there, Bill? He is married to a lady in Israel now on her way back. Her name is Evelyn, and she went to pay respects to Rona Ramon, the wife of Ilan Ramon, Israel's first Astronaut. Rona is a personal friend of this man's wife, Evelyn. Uh, Both uh, lost their husbands in the Columbia disaster. In fact, on one of our trips to Israel, we went to the cemetery of Ilan Ramon and his son, Asaf, and we said Kaddish. The Hebrew is mourner's prayer. Anyway, Evelyn is there and she uh, is with the president of the country as our other family members of Colombia, uh, and she introduced us to Rona on one of our trips to Israel so she's coming back when Bill she comes back uh, uh, tonight I'm sure it wasn't an easy time for the families and we have been praying for them so I point this out to you because I just want you to know you're not dealing with some rookies here <laughs> you know what I'm saying we got maps and everything okay so here's, here's the council. Furthermore, Ahitopo, I destroyed the name, but it's okay for Texans. Ahitopo was the counselor. You might be familiar with him. He was David's advisor as well. Now he's advising his rebellious son. He's an opportunist. He's a traitor. And so Ahitopo says to Absalom, and I happen to have an actual picture of them. Here <laughs> we... We found this. Archaeologists have under... It's an artist's depiction. Here's the counsel he gives. Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. It's a very good military plan because at this time it's thought David had only about 2,000 men with him. 12,000 against 2,000 good odds. A military advantage. Furthermore... He proposes that this take place, (coughs) look what he says, tonight. In other words, he wants the advantage of a surprise night attack. (coughs) You've been in the military. You have an overwhelming force. You take the opposition by surprise. You have an advantage. This, then, is quite a good plan. Verse 2, I will come upon him. By the way... He's unashamed about inserting himself into the mix, isn't he? Let me choose these men that I may arise. I will come upon him, etc., etc. This uh, counselor sees this as quite an opportunity for him to be promoted up the ranks in the king's court. You see, he's quite a narcissistic, opportunistic guy. I'll come upon him while he's weary and exhausted. Ah. This makes the plan even more sure of succeeding. Three things in his favor, an overwhelming force, a surprise night attack, and you strike while David and his troops are weary and exhausted. This is a surefire deal. It's a good plan. And he says, then, I will strike down the king alone, meaning, Absalom, you don't even have to get your hands dirty. You stay back here in the comforts of the palace here in Jerusalem. I'll go take care of it. You know what he's doing. I want the credit. I want to return to Jerusalem as the conquering hero. That's what's going on. Verse 3, I'll bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek, David, that is. Then all the people will be at peace. So the plan pleased Absalom, not only him, all the elders of Israel, as it should have. It was a good plan. It made sense. That's why what happens next surprises me. Why did Absalom seek additional counsel when, in fact, it looked like Ahitopel's counsel made sense? But nonetheless, it says in verse 5, then Absalom said, now call Hushai the Archite. It's Hushai from a place in, in the land from which we get the name Archite. Anyway, Hushai, you know who he is? He's a David loyalist. But he's serving Absalom. He's a double agent. It was set up by David. You'll see in just a second. Implanted right under Absalom's nose is a spy. And so, somehow, Absalom is moved to seek out the counsel of the very guy who's loyal to David. So he says, Call Hushai. Let's hear what he has to say. So, verse 6. When Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahitopel has spoken thus, uh, and he told him what his counsel was, and he says, shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahitopol has given is not good. I don't know that you and I can appreciate the boldness and bravery it took for Hushai to say this, because Ahitopol had quite a reputation He served as David's premier advisor and now Absalom's. In fact, at the end of the last chapter, verse 23, we read the advice of Ahitopol, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the Word of God. So was all the advice of Ahitopol regarded by both David and Absalom. You know how difficult it is to challenge the words of someone with a legacy, with a reputation. Saying the military with lots of time and grade. It took a lot of boldness and bravery to challenge someone. Now, Ahitopel's counsel generally was good. But at this point in his life, it's getting not to be so good. Why? His motives were impure. You know why? He's the grandfather of someone called Bathsheba. You know what David did to her. In fact, in the last chapter, do you recall? He, the same guy, advised Absalom to take David's concubines and have relations with them publicly. It's kind of like in your face, David. I got your women. So his motives are vengeful. This is how you treated my granddaughter. I treat you this way. So uh, that's kind of what's going on here. So for Hushai to say at this time his advice is not good required quite a lot of bravery. Moreover, verse 8, Hushai said, you know your father, he's speaking to Absalom, you know your father, David and his men, that they are mighty men and they are fierce like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. You will see this guy's the master of the uh, metaphor. I think he's a frustrated kind of a poet he had a way with words. Good night. He could persuade anyone about anything. Oh, David is tough. and he It's like if you go against him, it's like going against a bear robbed of her cubs. And your father's an expert in warfare and will not spend the night with the people. So he's calling into question. Ahitopo's he plan, he's saying <laughs> it, there's no surefire guarantee of success against David, even with a sneak attack. What do you think? He's going to set himself up, make himself vulnerable? Behold, verse 9, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place. It'll be when he falls on them at the first attack. Whoever hears of it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. So he's saying to the what do you think David's just going to be out there? under the sun with everybody else so you could attack his main party, find him and kill him? No, uh, says Hushai. He's probably going to be protecting himself in a cave like one of these. See these? This is These are real. This is from En which I told you about. En spring of the kid or something like that. En These are not man-made. They're actual. And it is likely these are one of the caves in which David took refuge when fleeing from Saul. And Husha is suggesting he may be putting himself in one of them right now. So this idea of taking 12,000 guys and easily laying your hands on David is not exactly going to work that way. And so he goes on to say, verse 10, and even the one who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion. See how he describes things? Beautiful. It will completely lose heart for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. But I can't. Okay. So he disputes ahitopol's plan and now advances his own. Hushai does. Verse 11. I counsel that all Israel be surely gathered to you from Dan even to Beersheba. Have you heard of that expression? From Dan to Beersheba is popular in the Bible let me give you an idea of what we're talking about here. Here is Dan in the north and all the way down here is Beersheba. Beersheba. So over here on your side, you have the same thing. Dan is, where's Dan? There it is. It says D-A-N, right? Dan, all the way down here to Beersheba. Look at this. And Dan was the most northern city in ancient Israel. Beersheba was the, oh, sorry, guys, I hope I'm not, I'm, oh, oh, my goodness, sorry, I'll be, I'll be careful here. But it, for the sake of illustration, what's an eye? So, <laughs> so, yeah, so they're right over there, Beersheba. So, Beersheba was the southernmost city of ancient Israel. You know what the distance is between Dan and Beersheba? About 150 miles. It's like Nothing. You know, when we take groups to Israel and we say, we'll cover the books of Genesis to Revelation in our time there, you say, what are you talking about? How do you do that? It's a small country, folks. It's the size of New Jersey. You go from north to south in a a matter of hours. It's like nothing to it. Anyway, so Hushai's plan is, oh, no, O king, don't settle for 12,000. Let's recruit troops from the totality of the country from Dan to Beersheba as the sand that is by the sea in abundance, and then he says, and that you personally go into battle. Ooh. Now, this is appealing to the ego of an already uncontrollably egotistical Absalom. He's a narcissist, and this plays right into it. You know what he's implying? Ahitophel's plan leaves you out of the glory. This one puts you right there. You'll be the conquering general. This will be nothing for you. You'll rally the whole country, and you'll go after David, and you'll get David, and you'll ride back into Yerushalayim on a white horse, and people will fall down before you, and you'll be the king, and you can see this egomaniac. He's thinking, this sounds like a pretty good pretty good plan. And there's another reason for it. It buys time. ahitopol 's plan could have taken place that evening. You got 12,000 troops rearing and ready to go, but to recruit troops from all over the country is going to take some time. <clears throat> That's why Hushai did it. It give him time to warn David. Remember, he's a double agent. He's a spy in Absalom's court. So, verse 12 We shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on. Look at another beautiful poet. We will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. This guy is unbelievable. And of him and of all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and will drag it into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of Ahitobel. No, it wasn't. So I'm left with this mystery. Why are they even seeking Hushai's council, number one? And how could they possibly think it's a better plan? Uh, The first plan, Ahitopos, is perfect. It guarantees success. You have an overwhelming force. You're striking. It's a surprise night attack. And you're striking while the opposition is weary, fatigued, and all the rest. It's a brilliant plan. What was it in them that caused them not to go for it? Well, here's what it says. Look at the rest of verse 14. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the... Good counsel of Ahitobel. It was good counsel, but God ordained to thwart it. Why? So that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Absalom buys into it. You know what happens? The next chapter will tell us he dies. God, who is sovereign, is making sure that his king is going to be on the throne. Not Absalom. King David. David. God, in his providential care of the universe, is proving himself to be greater than any worldly, fleshly leader. Now, folks, initially, both Absalom and the elders of Israel, as we read earlier, thought that Ahitopel's plan was good. Look what it says. The saying pleased Absalom. Well, and all the elders of Israel, don't you see, it was God who dissuaded them from following an obviously good and logical, rational plan in favor of Hushai's plan. It was all due to the sovereignty of God. Now, folks, I hope you take comfort in that attribute of God today as the world goes crazy. The legislator in legislation in New York has voted Just one of the most grotesque pieces of legislation. It can't even be dignified by calling it abortion. It's infanticide. It's the murder of a perfectly viable baby right up until the time of birth. Do you know seven states already have that on the books? New York is not the first. And did you see the rejoicing in the legislature? Yeah, like it's victory. It's evildoers rejoicing over rebellion against God, the giver of life, who is in favor of the protection of the most defenseless ones. That is not a political issue. You belong to what party you want to. Vote for who you want to. You're free as a Christian. I'm not taking political sides. There's a biblical mandate to protect the defenseless. And who is more defenseless than an enwombed baby about to be birthed? It's sick. It's crazy. It's so crazy. It makes a guy like me want not to get out of bed in the morning. And that's not the right response. There is the right response, and I'll show you what it is as I refresh your memory about something we read about in 2 Samuel 15, verse 31. This is what it says. And it was told, David, Ahitopol is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahitopo into foolishness. You have the prayer of a person of God, and you have the response of a thoroughly sovereign God. And he rules. I love this particular image. He's got the whole world in his hands. It's not the political power brokers of either party or third party or fourth, whatever party you want. It's not folks in Venezuela, China, Russia, North Korea, or the Washington, D.C. who are calling the shots. They only think they are. Oh no. Behind the scenes, God is working out his plan, frankly, through the prayers of His people, and in light of his sovereignty. What is the distinctively Christian response to all this? It is not a clenched fist. It's not cynicism and bitterness. No, it's prayer. Now, you can do anything. You can protest. You can burn down buildings. You can do anything like that. Anyone could do that. But a believer has the distinct privilege, only a believer, of praying. And I'm seeing in this chapter that's what gets the job done. David prayed. God heard. And God made the otherwise good counsel of Ahitobel seem like foolishness to Absalom the king. God is at work. But it's behind the scenes. That's our problem. In fact, David didn't know about this, did he? You know what David knows now? I don't know what's going to happen to me. That's what he knows. He has no idea about his future. He's in the desert. He's in a doggone cave again, hiding out. This time from his own son. He has no idea what God is doing behind the scenes. And what's more, neither do you or I. So what do we do? We look back on what God was willing to give and we conclude from it, therefore he can be trusted. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did not withhold his greatest gift, his own son, but sent him to redeem one such as you and I, how will he not also be at work, albeit mostly behind the scenes on our behalf? Folks, something's going on because our father neither slumbers nor... Yeah, you know how it goes. The news is not the news. It's what's happening behind the scenes. That's newsworthy. And God is doing something. Trust in him. He's in control. Nobody who's foisted himself or herself in office is in control. Nobody who's elected is in control. He is in control. He is in control. Okay, so verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, Zadok, sorry. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, uh, this is what Ahitophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel. And this is what, I have counsel. Now, who are these guys? They're priests. (laughs) They're serving. They're they're descendants of Aaron. But they too are spies. This is more of David's espionage network. Now he has Hushai and these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, (coughs) who are also serving right under the nose of Absalom. But they're there to report what's going on to David, how do I know this? Well, because of what it said in 2 Samuel earlier, 2 Samuel 15, I'll summarize it. It happened as David came to the summit, summit of what? Mount of Olives. He's running from his son. He pauses on the summit of the Mount of Olives. There, Hushai, the same guy we're reading about here, comes to him. He wants to stay with David. David said, thanks, but no thanks. You could be, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, You can be a more service to me, he says, if you go back to Jerusalem. Make yourself a servant of Absalom. Because when you go there, these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, they too will be with you. They're allies of mine. The three of you can serve there. And not only that, those two priests have two sons, Jonathan and Ahimaaz. So now David's spy network consists of five, Hushai, the two priests, and their two sons. He's got five who have access to Absalom, the rebellious, illegitimate king, who David wants there to report back to him. And that's what he said in Second Samuel 15, and God is honoring that plan now. He's saying to them, you'll all be together, and it'll be whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to the priests. And the priests will tell their two sons, and the two sons will tell me. That's the plan. So verse 16, now therefore, Hushai says, send quickly, tell David, saying, don't spend the night at the fords in the wilderness. By all means, cross over, cross over what? Jordan River. It's a north-south boundary. Cross over the Jordan River, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now, Jonathan and Ahima, Az something, Ahimaaz, these are the sons of the priests. We're staying at Enrogel. So I want to show you something. I'll show you where we are pretty sure Enrogel is. So once again, we're looking at the old city of Jerusalem. Here is where the temple first and second stood, right? It's elevated. And if you go this way, you have to cross a valley. And here's the Mount of Olives over here. So for you on this side, uh, here's where the temples stood, Jerusalem. And if you go this way, you get to the Mount of Olives, but you have to cross the Kidron Valley. See it? And the Kidron Valley goes down, and it meets up here with another valley, Hinnom Valley. See it to the bottom? Here's the Hinnom Valley. So at the junction of the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley is a place called Enrogel. See it? What is Enrogel? Enrogel. It's a place of water. It could have been a man-made well or a spring of water. The plan is for the two sons of the priests to go there, and from there to deliver word to David about what's going on. And Hushai says, a maidservant would go and tell them. A woman would meet them at Enrogel. Why? She too is a spy. <laughs> Part of David's spy network And uh, why a woman? She won't attract attention because in that day, it was common for women to fetch the water. So uh, she would not be noticed as doing anything unusual. And they would go and tell King David for they could not be seen entering the city. The two guys could be seen in their movement maybe to be suspicious but this lady drawing water at this watering place would draw no suspicion whatsoever looked like a good plan Ah. verse 18 but a lad did see them and told Absalom he ratted on them some kid saw him and ratted on them so the two of them they found out about this the two of them departed quickly they came to the house of a man in Bashorim. where is it don't know for sure Somewhere, maybe, on the Mount of Olives, a guy lived there. And he had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. That's where these two guys went to hide. Now, hang on. You say, well, how are they hiding in a well? Well, the word well could mean other things. It also could mean something like this, a cistern, a dry cistern. You know where this one is found? Masada. Some of you have been at Masada. King Herod you know developed it hundreds of jewish people hid out there masada you say ah baloney how could they survive what no water what are you talking about there was more than one cistern there how many volumes of water do you think that can hold look at there's a guy on the bottom of it they collect rainwater what are you talking about they could stay there indefinitely for years and years So it's probably in something like this that these two guys were hidden. What's more, verse 19, the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, where are Achima, Azin, Jonathan, and Yonatan? And the woman said to them, they've crossed the brook of water. She lied. Did she not? That's a lie. And when they searched and couldn't find them, they returned to Jerusalem. She lied, which leads to this question. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? (laughs) I know what the Ten Commandments say. Thou shalt not lie. So for those of you who take that and stop there, stop up your ears, and please don't be bothered by what I want to tell you. She lied. I'm not saying God condoned it, but what would you do? We're here in a comfortable environment. Do you know what I mean? We're thinking about nothing more than lunch, and when is this Jewish guy ever going to end? <laughs> I know what you're thinking, but that's not so bad. She's in a rough situation. It's an ethical dilemma. What does she choose between two ethical issues? Lying is not good, and neither is the innocent murderer of two guys. Listen. If she told the truth, surely Absalom would would get them and kill them. What would you do? What does she do? She chooses, well, frankly, the lesser of two evils. It's not that lying is good, ever promoted nor condoned. But life's important. No, it's not the first time. Remember a lady named Rahab or Ahab? Or excuse me, Rahab. She hid two Israelite men who were spying out the land. She lied about them. Which way did they go? Oh, they went that way. When they were hiding in her house at the time. Not only is she not rebuked for it, do you know she made her way into the faith honor roll in Hebrews 11? And she's not even Jewish. She's a non-Jew. How about this one, Exodus? Pharaoh tells two Hebrew midwives to kill Jewish male babies. Pua and Shifra. I remember those names because our granddaughter's name is Shifra. We just watched her the last couple days. What a blessing for her to go. Yeah. We're exhausted. But anyway, she's a little cutie. Shifra I means beauty, beautiful. Listen, uh, they disobeyed the government. They du- duly appointed government. Pharaoh said, kill him. They said, we're not going to kill him. Secondly, they lied. He said, What's up? Pharaoh said, What's up? They said, You know, these Jewish women. I don't know what's with them, man. They just pop out their babies. I mean, the baby's born before we can do anything about it. Oh Pharaoh. They lied. Well, not only they're not rebuked for it, they're rewarded. They have children of their own. I'm not saying God condones lie, I'm just saying, what would you have done? Let me bring it home a little, make it a little more contemporary. Do you know this lady? She's Dutch. She lived in Nazi, uh, at the time of the Nazis. Cory Ten Boom, she and her family hid Jewish people in, the, in their walls. They had fake walls, the recesses, they hid, they hid Jewish people from the Nazis. The Nazis said, Hey, any Jews around here? The Ten Boom said, Oh, no, we do not seen any Jews. They lied. What would you have done? What are you going to do? She wrote a book, by the way, called The Hiding Place. A movie was made. Great book. If you're looking for a good read, Corey Ten Boom. She's with the Lord now. So what do you say? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying, hmm, be careful about how you handle Scripture. Here's Here's another commandment. Thou shalt not murder, right? But the same book that says that, Exodus, later on, gives a plan for successfully lodging a military campaign. You can murder in war and in self-defense or defense of another. The same book that says, thou shalt not murder, says that. Here's another commandment, honor your father and mother. You know about that one? Yeah, but what if your father or mother are requiring something of you contrary to the will of God? The Bible says, no, in that case, you must obey God rather than even father and mother. Here's my point. I'm not counseling some liberal, slippy, loose handling of Scripture. Please don't hold me to that. I'm just saying you get the commandments in a concise form, and then you get the rest of the Bible to tell you how to apply them. Don't be so rigid is what I'm saying. If you're faced with an ethical dilemma the likes of which this woman here is, what would you do? Now, lying for personal convenience is not permissible. But what about something someone called the lie of necessity? Some would say it was necessary in this case to spare life. Now, we can argue about this. I'm just going to do something really frustrating. I've gotten into this controversial issue quickly, and just as quickly, I'm getting out. I just want to tell you it's a sign of spiritual maturity to wrestle with these things. It's a sign of immaturity to occupy a position too soon. Study, wrestle, pray, get deep into the scriptures. Don't come, just don't resolve the issue prematurely because a lot of times you come up with a resolution that doesn't fit the rest of scripture. Okay, verse 21 now. It came about after they had departed, they came up out of the well and they went and told King David and they said to David, arise, cross over the water quickly for thus Ahitopel is counseled against you. So look, David committed sin. It was pretty bad. David confessed it and repented of it. I know this. Read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and you'll see. David's sin was forgiven, but God is still allowing him to experience Hardships, not to destroy him or even punish him, but to reform his character and discipline him. If you're a believer, you need not fear the punishment of God, and I'll tell you why. If your sin by your faith has been punished in Jesus, it will not be punished in you. That's why we use the term substitutionary atonement. He's the sin bearer. God does not punish his kids, but as a loving father does and ought to, he disciplines his kids. David had a problem. It wasn't just with Bathsheba. He had a sexual issue. He constantly got himself in trouble with too many women for crying out loud. And so God wants to prune him of that. And while David is in the wilderness and while all this family upheaval and while he's on the run and while his future is in jeopardy, you know what that guy did? He ran to his Messiah like never before. I see the evidence of it in the Psalms. Oh my goodness. He developed such a lack of confidence in his flesh and so much trust in Almighty God. He ran to him in his pain and, and with his praise, instead of running to wine, women, and song, and fleeting pleasures, he ran, he ran to his God, his constant stay and hope and all that was taught him and i wonder if david was living out something he didn't know about but we know about because we have the new testament hebrews 12:11 all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful yet to those who've been trained by it later afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness You may be experiencing this now. If not, you will. It's not that God has abandoned you. On the contrary, He's interested in shaping you up. He's pruning us so that we can be more like Him. Praise God. Most of the world doesn't give a lick about you. The creator of the world do. We ought to rejoice. So verse 22, David and all the people who were with him arose. They crossed the Jordan, and by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. Now when Ahitopol saw that his counsel was not followed, look what he did with such clarity of thought, such deliberation. Look, first he saddled his donkey and arose. Then he went to his home, his city. Then he set his house in order. In other words, he straightened out his legal and administrative affairs. He set his house in order, and then... He strangled himself. He died. And he was buried in the grave of his father. He took his life. Why did he do it? His identity was so tied to what he did that when he could no longer did what he did, when that came to an end, he thought it's time for me to come to an end. What did he do? He was David and Absalom's key counselor, but now he wasn't. He was demoted in favor of Hushai's counsel. He couldn't handle it. Because his sense of personhood was tied to what he did, not to who he is. That could happen, particularly with men. Anyone, particularly with men. Because we find great satisfaction in pursuits outside the home. Our job becomes us. So when the job ends, we think we should end. That's why I pray for guys like crazy during times of unemployment. Because during times of unemployment, guys are prone to feel of no value. Listen, it happens even in the ministry. It's a very dangerous thing when the pastor thinks his life is his church. No, it's not. His life is a relationship with the head of the church. It's not the church. That's just something God gave you the privilege of doing to keep you off the streets. You should not love the church, the ministry. You should love Jesus. The ministry is just something he gave you to do. Some pastors think there's no life after ministry. What? Did Jesus die when you retire? So that's one reason why he took his life. Second reason, he's smart. Remember, he's a wise counselor. He knows Hushai's plan is going to fail. He knows Hushai's advice to Absalom is going to fail. Absalom's going to be in the front lines with all these men. But David's going to beat him kill him by the way the next chapter tells us that's exactly what happens Absalom in his ego ego goes and he dies and Ahitopel sees this coming and he knows when that happens David the rightful king will be back where he belongs in Jerusalem he'll see me to be a traitorous conspirator and he'll have my head and he's saying well I'll just get there before he does and he killed himself now a lot could be said about this let me just say this briefly you can't take your own life <coughs> You're not allowed to if you're a believer. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> because you're not your own. Now, we throw this word redemption around frivolously. Redemption, redeemer. Do you know what it means? It means as if we're on a slave block. <clears throat> and there are the potential purchasers out there. And they say, hey, that slave, second from the left, turn sideways. They want to check, check out the goods. And someone out there says, uh, how much? And the auctioneer says, your blood. That guy says, that price way too high for that subhuman. Jesus yeah. is in the crowd. And he calls out, how much to redeem that one? And the auctioneer says, your blood. And Jesus says, paid in full. Glory. You are not your own. That slave goes off the auction block to be a bondservant of Christ Jesus, free indeed. But that slave has no right to his body any more than a woman can assert her right to her body and abort a viable full-term baby. That right is not greater than the right to let someone live. Listen to me. Suicide for a Christian is 180-degree murder. Those who are suicidal are often not homicidal. You wouldn't take someone else's life. You'll just take your own because you think you have a right to. No, no, no. It's murder turned on you. Why? Because you're taking the life of someone who doesn't belong to you. If Jesus bought you, redeemed you with a price, his blood, you don't have a right to take your life. Now, listen here. It's okay for Jesus to have depressed sons and depressed daughters. It's just not all right for Jesus to have dead sons and daughters. I grapple and have with depression since I was a kid. I still do. I just say, Lord, if you want a depressed kid, you got him. But I'm not going to kill myself. I made two attempts before Christ. I'm not going to do it. My value is not what I do, and my value is not what I feel. My value is whose I is. I got bought off the slave block by the blood of Christ. I'm not going to kill myself. It's okay to be miserable, if you will. He can have miserable kids. He can't have dead kids. Live to Christ. Just as you are. So, a lot can be... You know this guy... uh, Poor guy, Ahitobo, took his life. You know who he reminds me of? Judas Iscariot. Both betrayed the rightful king. Both ended up in the shame and guilt of it all, killing themselves. Hey, don't betray the rightful king. Jesus, Yeshua, is the king of Jews and Gentiles. Don't betray him. Well, here's what happened. Verse 24. David came to Machanaim. It's near a a river called the Jabbok River. Here it is. I have been there. It's a real place. Beautiful. The first time I went there, I was so overwhelmed because I remembered the significance of this place. In the Bible, I thought, oh, my goodness. Now I am here at the Jabbok River. David is there, and uh, Absalom crosses the Jordan in pursuit of him, and Absalom and his army They camp out, the text tells us in verse 26, in the land of Gilead. Gilead, look, I want to show you something. Gilead is not a city, it's a region. So here's Gilead, see it in red right there? It goes like over here, this way. And can you all see it over here? Gilead, right over there, that's Gilead. So it's on, um, what side is that? East side of the Jordan River, elevated kind of a mountainous area. David is right around here, Machanaim, somewhere around the Jabbok River. Absalom and his troops are either south of the river or north, I don't know, somewhere here in Gilead, somewhere around here. Hey, when you think of Gilead, what comes from Gilead? A bomb. It's a medicinal plant. There's an old African-American spiritual with these beautiful words. Listen, there is a bomb in Gilead. To make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin sick soul. Slaves wrote that and sang it. They found freedom not from man. but They, 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 they found freedom in the God man. They were not talking about a plant. Jesus is the bomb of Gilead. Some people want to bypass the Old Testament. What is wrong with them? Correct. So now when David had come to Mahanaim, listen, three guys, I'll go fast. One guy named Shobi, another guy, Mahir, and another guy, Barzillai, they meet him. Look what they do, verse 28. They bring him stuff, beds, basins, pottery, wheat, flour, barley, all this, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese. Why? Because David and his group need food. The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, as we come to a close, I want to tell you something. David's at Mahanaim, and these three guys bring him all this stuff. The first time Mahanaim is mentioned in the Bible is the book of Bereshit, or Genesis. Genesis 32. Jacob, Jacob, the deceiver, is coming back home. Land of Canaan. He hears his brother Esau's coming after him. He's nervous. You know what he's doing? He's camping out at the Jabbok River. And while there, we read this in Genesis chapter 32. As Jacob started on his way again, angels of God came to meet him. When Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, this is God's camp. So he named the place Machanaim, which means double host or double camp. Here's what happened to Jacob. He's camped out future in question. He's camped out at the Jabbok River. That's his camp. But then he realizes, I am not alone. God is here. God's camp is here. God manifests himself through an angelic host. And he named the place double camp, two camps. It's my camp, but I'm not alone. It's God's camp too. Then later, years later, David's at the same place. God provided for Jacob through angels at Machanaim. God did not send angels to David. He provided nonetheless to David through three smelly guys, at least one of whom is not even a Jew. He's a guy from Ammon, present-day Jordan. David's prior enemy is coming to take care of him. Here's the point, folks. God doesn't lose sight of his kids wherever they are in the world, and he can deliver the goods through invisible or visible means. It might be an angelic host, and it might be a caring other who provides for a material need. It's all from our Father who has all resources at his disposal. You may think you're being put down by power brokers in this world, but all along, our God, your God, reigns. He knows where you are. Wherever you are, whatever your locale is, call it Mahanaim. It's not just you. God is encamped there as well. You, as a believer, have two locations. One is physical or geographic or circumstantial, but the other, which must prevail, is spiritual. So you may be a Christian in Houston. That's your physical locale. But remember, the one that's more important is that you're in Houston and in Christ. You may be a Christian in the throes of cancer, but you're in Christ. You may be a Christian in the throes of unemployment, but you're in Christ. You may be in the Christian in the throes of family upheaval. But you're in Christ. I didn't say ignore the first location, but it must be informed by and give way to the second eternal location. No matter what is happening, circumstantially you are in Christ. There are always two camps. Look for the camp of God. Don't despise him if his delivery of goods to you It's just through ordinary fleshly people. It's not extraordinary at all. And don't doubt that he may choose an extraordinary means to rescue you as well. For he has the armies of heaven at his disposal. He has not abandoned this sinking ship. You know why? It's not a sinking ship. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's steering it. Here's the issue. Make sure you're in the boat with Jesus. How else are you going to be guaranteed you're going to get to the other side? That's what I want to know. Machanayim. In whatever it is, I didn't say deny it, be unaffected by it. I just said it doesn't loom that large when you remember you're also in Christ Jesus. Machanaim. As he was with Jacob, as he was with David, he is with you. For Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And that's why we we bow before you, Lord Jesus. We refuse to be called religious people. We don't want any of that religious stuff, some system. We have a relationship with you through a mediator. Jesus, our Passover lamb. For all people, you stand willing to rescue us from the auction block. And then we read, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. We're not looking for some political freedom and fair treatment, all that other kind of stuff. Frankly, we're not very hopeful about it. We are free. From the wrath of God to come, we children will not experience your wrath because you, Lord Jesus, the only begotten son, have in full measure already experienced it for us. That's why you said it is finished and paid in full. Oh, God, no matter where we may be encamped in this sin-sick, rough life, help us to remember, there you are too, Mahanaim, two camps. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you've saved us not only from the penalty of sin, but from hopelessness, loneliness, purposelessness. Have your way with us, O oh God. Discipline us, purify us, that we might bear more fruit, much fruit, and be even more like you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time.